In Ephesians chapter 2, if you'd like to turn there with me, I want to begin the sermon. It's a very familiar verse here, but let's turn there. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, can you all hear me all right? In Ephesians 2 verse 1, Paul tells the Ephesians, and certainly all of us, because God put this here for all of us, and you... He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Satan works. He is busy 24 hours a day. And I'm going to be speaking on our battle with Satan. Our battle with Satan. Because, brethren, he is going to strike. He is striking now, perhaps, in ways we do not fully understand. And he will continue to strike more and more and more powerfully as the months and years go by. He is the prince of this earth's atmosphere. He's in charge of the television programs that we're watching. He guides them. He influences them. He's in charge of the media and the kind of stuff that comes out in the radio and the Internet and the motion picture industry, and all the rest of it. He is the prince of the power of this world. He is the great God of this world. And remember Jesus said near the end of the Gospel of John, the the prince of this world is coming and has nothing in me. Nothing. Yet he calls Satan the prince of this world. And Jesus knew, of course, and Satan was on the way to him, perhaps right then through Judas Iscariot, who had possessed uh, uh, Judas by that time. So he is very real, and we have to be aware of that. Over in Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, I'm sorry, beginning in verse 10, Ephesians 6, verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong. Don't be weak. You're not going to win any kind of battle if you're weak. Be strong. In the Lord and in the power of His might. You can't do it of yourself. As Mr. Pyle says, we can only do it through Christ in us. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Paul said in Philippians 4.13. We can only do it that way as we brought out so many times. But we must constantly remind ourselves of that. We've got to walk with Christ, talk with Christ, let Christ rule our minds. Let Christ rule our thoughts. Let Christ rule our attitudes. So he says, be strong in that power. Put on the whole armor of God. We've got to have that armor that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the machinations, the dirty tricks, the attitudes, the ways that Satan tries to get at us in so many different ways. The wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Often we think we do. I know when I felt I was being persecuted by the leadership sometimes, or the lower leadership, not Mr. Armstrong, but others in worldwide, I I might have thought, well, these are these men. But then I had to realize, no, Satan is trying to destroy the church. And he did eventually destroy the church in the sense that they became a non-church of God. Worldwide church of God is no longer a church of God at all. It is simply an apostasy gone back into mainstream Protestantism and confusion. But the ultimate battle is not against men. 
And as I learned that and prayed more and more about it, I didn't need to get resentful against so-and-so and so-and-so. I could just realize they were very weak. Some of them had never been converted. One of the great big guys that was very carnal back in the 70s suddenly got sick when I got in power as the director of the ministry during the crisis of 79 and literally laid down and either was sick or pretended to be sick for months. All of a sudden, when the liberals came back into power, bang, he's right up again. He resurrected immediately <laughs> in power and had a lot of energy suddenly to help destroy the church. It's people like that are around. They'll kind of go underground at times, but they'll be right back there to get you later on unless they're really conquered by God. And most of us in this room are not conquered by God, as Mr. Armstrong used to say, to the extent we should be. Probably none of us are. We've got a lot to grow, a lot to go. So let's understand that. We need to pray for each other on that constantly. So he tells us here, put on the whole armor. We need armor that you may be able to stand against the devil and his tricks. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities, high-ranking beings, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against wicked spirits in high places, as it may be translated. And some translations have it that way. Wicked spirits. We are battling Satan, the devil, and his demons. That is our real battle. And brethren, we have to understand that more than most of us do. Some of you think, well, you just talk about when things are a problem. You, let's, you know, like, uh, what's his name, Bill Cosby kind of had a joke about that in some of his joke records. The devil, the devil did it, I guess he says, and others. And, you know, he'd say devil, but devil, like D-E-B-I-L, but the devil did it. People sometimes say things like that. Well, that can be an excuse, of course, for people who don't want to control their own problems. And we all have our own problems and our own weaknesses. But nevertheless, we are battling Satan the devil who will influence us, take advantage of our weaknesses, guide us the wrong way, influence us, discourage us, confuse us every way he can. And our ultimate enemy is Satan the devil. We know that human nature is bad, as we say. The heart of man is you know, wicked above all things, or deceitful and wicked above all things. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. But as Mr. Armstrong said, that heart of man, that human nature is not normal human nature. It's human nature under the influence of Satan the devil. Because as he would go back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had basically a weak nature, but they had a neutral nature. They were not hostile against God. But so much of the... People today, much so much of the world, actually has a hostility to God. The vast majority of human beings do. It's not active. It's not known by them. But there's a natural resentment against a God who will butt his nose into your life and tell you what to do, so to speak, if people put it in that terms, as you know. And it tells us in Romans, I'm a little off my uh, notes here, but I, I'll turn to this scripture anyway since I brought it up. It's Romans 8. Verse 7, a very important principle where God tells us back here about uh, human nature. He says, because the carnal mind, the human mind we all normally have, Romans 8, verse 7, is enmity against God. That's the normal human mind, a court, sort of a natural resentment, a natural hostility against the real God who would tell us what to do and what not to do. 
and sometimes do it through His Word, sometimes do it through His ministers preaching or teaching or writing. However it comes, people resent that. They get their back up about it, as we say. The carnal mind has a natural enmity against God. Why? For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. It just doesn't want to submit to God and to God's laws and God's ways. So we have that normal human mind to fight, but of course that, that normal human mind, as we say today, is influenced by Satan the devil. And it has a devilish influence quite often working with it and aggravating the normal human selfishness very, very much. So we have to understand we're battling a very real force. Brethren, as we've said, God is not real to most people in the world. And that's absolutely true. Maybe God is real to the majority of you in this room and you brethren around the world who may hear this later. I hope he is. We know he's not fully real to everyone because some people in God's churches are among us and they don't really get it. But he's real, perhaps, to the most of us. But is Satan the devil also real to all of you? Satan the devil, as a spirit personality, exists, and his demons are spirit personalities, and they exist, and they are very, very real, my brethren. And there is a spiritual warfare going on. And you have to really understand that to grasp what is going on, often even in God's church, certainly in the society around us, and certainly in the world. As we've said before, the leadership in Europe of the nations is basically normal, carnal. We know that. They're not converted men, as we understand conversion, but basically decent or well-meaning men as a whole. That's going to change, but it will not be perceived by the world. But we in God's church, at a point in time, as new leaders come in, probably within the next ten years or less, probably less, as they come into power in the next six to nine years, we will sense a different spirit among those leaders. And there will be a sort of a gleam in their eye. I remember one guy I used to know in the work way back in the 50s and had lunch with him and knew him fairly well, had lunch with him, just him and me a number of times. And one of the few things we had in common beside a general interest in world affairs was Rocky Road ice cream. And we both enjoyed Rocky Road ice cream. But a uh, very smart guy. But uh, he suddenly later on, after one guy failed and another guy failed and another guy failed to take over the work trying to overthrow Mr. Armstrong, he thought, I'm in the best position. And he tried to take over the work and I could see suddenly a gleam in his eye and a whole different spirit came over him. He was going for it. No question. I knew that before most people, not because I'm smarter, I'm not but because I'd been around more and watched all this stuff before, and because although I had many other weaknesses in my intelligence and understanding, I always was fairly good at picking up on attitudes and situations among people. And I sensed that and knew that. No question about it. It happened. But these leaders in Europe are going to get the gleam in their eye, and you'll sense that they're going to get in power, and suddenly, you know, they're going to be very friendly, very charming, but things are going to start getting worse. They're going to tighten the screws on us. They're going to tighten the screws on any people who stand up for righteousness. They're going to tighten the screws even on the Protestant evangelicals who oppose the great whore. They're going to do it cleverly, but they'll have laws, they'll have situations, and suddenly anyone 
uh, who's doing right will be in trouble. He who is righteous will make himself a prey, it tells us back in Isaiah 59. The righteous man will continually be persecuted and harassed, and he'll feel, well, what's going on? He won't know. But those in God's church ought to know there is a spirit warfare going on, and these men who will be influenced by the devil are going to be in charge over there in this beast power that will be arising very, very quickly in the next ten years or less. And I won't say the final culmination will be in 10 years, but it probably will be. They're arising, I mean, and being in power. It's going to be kind of spooky because most people won't get it. Many people, even in God's church, in various branches of God's church, let's say, won't get it. But we, if we're close to God, hopefully will get it and we will understand a spirit war is going on. And Satan the devil has spirits behind every Gentile nation. He has demons behind every major false religion, by the way, too, and they reflect the spirit, the personality of that demon when you understand it. So we have to understand, and the Satan must become very real to us, and we've got to realize that uh, Satan is very good at confusing people and confusing them about uh, what's going on so they don't even know it's Satan doing it. They'll blame it on some other person, or they'll blame it on something or someone in God's church. They'll accuse the wrong people. They won't know it's coming from Satan, whatever happens to them, or admit their fault in it, or whatever. We've got to know our enemy. I've told you before how a number of historians have written that General George Patton, you know, blood and guts Patton, studied when he was going into the North African campaigns against Erwin Rommel, who was probably the most cagey, uh, outstanding strategist in the entire Second World War, except for perhaps General Douglas MacArthur, he studied Rommel. Rommel was very smart, a top German general. You say, why didn't he win? Well, because the United States became the arsenal of democracy, we had him outnumbered, outgunned, and everything else, finally. But he held on a long time. Very smart man. But Patton studied all the things he could. Where did Rommel go to school in Germany? And during the peacetime, they published that. What military historians did Rommel read? Who were his heroes? He got inside Rommel's mind so he could understand his enemy. You see, and then when these battles, he thought, what did Rommel do before? What did his heroes do? And a similar, what will he do? And then he could figure it out and beat Rommel, which he did on a couple of occasions, not always. Anyway, we've got to know our enemy. That's a very important thing. And you've got to know that your enemy is real. And there are spirit beings right around here who would like to get at you and get at me. And I'm not kidding. They are real. I can be overcome by them. I can. Any one of you can. Any one of our ministers sitting here can. As I've told you before, I can go back and show you the list of the vice presidents. Great, big, beautiful, double-spread picture back in 1969. The vice presidents of the Worldwide Church of God. Very impressive envoy. The most beautiful, big envoy we ever published. The big college yearbook, which is also telling about the work as well. Where are they? Most of them fell away one way or the other. I don't need to go into details. Most of them, evangelists, leading men of God, helping Mr. Armstrong at that time, falling away, getting confused, getting disoriented, getting bitter. It can happen to anyone, whether you're an evangelist, pastor, 
elder, it doesn't make any difference. Satan, the devil, is powerful. And we've got to realize that. So, brethren, we need to know our enemy. Turn with me back to Daniel chapter 10, if you would. Daniel chapter 10. And I'm going to begin reading here in Daniel 10 and verse uh, 10. Easy to remember. 10.10. Here, Daniel was left alone after a certain vision and was shaken, was weak. And this great angel came to touch him, an archangel, I think. And suddenly he touched me, and which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands, the spirit being touching him. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, and brethren, even in the darkest hour, if you are really serving God and crying out to God, God knows your heart, and you will be greatly beloved of our Father in heaven, and he will help us through the things that are going on. But Daniel was especially faithful and loyal and courageous, and he was a man greatly beloved. Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have been sent to speak to you. And Daniel then stood trembling. And then he said, Do not fear, Daniel, for from, your, uh, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand. You know, it had been some time, and Daniel thought, I prayed and prayed, and nothing happened. Apparently nothing did happen, and he could have got discouraged. He didn't. He didn't turn aside at least. But here's this angel came and encouraged him. He said, it's not too late. From the very first time you begin to understand, and you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself. Now, that's another very, very key thing that God looks at and that we have to bear in mind when we're fighting the devil. If we think we're important... If we think that we're strong, that is perhaps one of our greatest weaknesses at that point. As I read you a few weeks ago from 1 Corinthians 10.13, 1 Corinthians 10.13, He who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall, God tells us. So, he said, and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. God heard your prayer right away, and I've come uh, because of your words, because of Daniel's heartfelt prayer, and just pouring out his heart to God over and over. And you can see how Daniel did that kind of thing back in Daniel 9, the first few verses. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia, who was this prince? We don't read about him in world history. <laughs> this was a prince that's never mentioned in world history. He was the spirit being behind the king of Persia. The spirit, the demon, who is guiding that nation overall. A very real being, and God knows about it, and God talks about him. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. They actually had a spirit war going on here. This demon was able to block him off, and I guess God permitted that for whatever reason, for three weeks. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, here came the super archangel, the cherub, to help him. For I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision refers to many days to come. And, of course, he was telling him a whole series of things then in chapters 11 and 12. Tremendous things were going to occur, which we've often preached to you. Then down in verse 18... Again, one came to him in the likeness of a man, 
because demons, I mean not demons, but angels appear as a man, usually a young man, touched me and greatly strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly beloved. This is repeated three times, I've noticed, in this long passage in Daniel. I haven't read the third time, but three different times God tells Daniel he's greatly beloved. That must have been very encouraging to him. Fear, I'm sorry, fear not, he says, peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my uh, Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. By the way, I stumble here a little bit at times more than I used to. I need a new set of glasses, and as I get older, I better get brighter lights and everything else. But so, so it's not that I can't read, but I have a problem I don't always didn't used to have when I was younger. So you'll understand that. I've kept telling uh, Monica and uh, and Steve Stifler and the other people around uh, and uh, Tom Turner and others in the office. I said, "You've got to learn to avoid one thing. What's that?" Old age. You've got to avoid it. <laughs> it's bad business. <laughs> anyway, then he said, Do you know why I've come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. You see, another spirit battle. And when I have gone forth indeed, the prince of Greece. You see, another demon guiding that situation there will come. But I tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. And then he goes on and tells what's going to happen. So God allowed wicked spirits to actually block off this one angel until a super archangel, a cherub, came. One of the three cherubs, Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. And, of course, Lucifer turned aside and became Satan the devil. So one of the two remaining faithful cherubs came and backed them up. And help them break through this barrier and get to Daniel and help and encourage him and give him this message. Behind the scenes in Europe, demons are going to guide and influence things. Behind the scenes over in China and India and perhaps causing sometimes a big misunderstanding or a partial war or something to weaken us. If the Chinese try to go across the Taiwan Straits and crush them and we promise to back that up. But you say, oh, that's all human. Yes. But demons may be there to guide situations in ways we do not understand. And God allows that at times and shells about it in the Bible. Things that we do not understand. A spirit world, spirit armies going on in spiritual battles. And we don't see those armies, but they are very, very real. Turn back to Second Chronicles, if you would. Second Chronicles chapter 18. Here we find that Jehoshaphat, the righteous king of Judah, was going to help Ahab, verse 3, this wicked king of Israel. As you know, you read about him as one of the most wicked kings. Now, God tells us in Proverbs, he said, choose your friends carefully, <laughs> and he that walks with wise men will be wise. Jehoshaphat didn't do that just because it was the you know, the other king here, that they used to all be together in one nation. Oh, well, I'll go along with you. That was one mistake Jehoshaphat made right there. He just went off and said, my people is your people, and we'll just hang together regardless. He should not have done that. Big, big mistake right away. But he got in here, and then these false prophets said, oh, go up and fight these people, and we'll win. But Jehoshaphat said in verse 6, is there not still a prophet of the ever-living one here? 
Isn't there a prophet of Yahweh, the true God, that we may inquire of him? And so, well, they asked around and they said, well, there's one prophet, uh, Micaiah, the son of Imla. And uh, Jehoshaphat said, let, uh, uh, anyway, he always says evil about me. <laughs> and uh, this other king said, but Jehoshaphat said, don't say that. He knew this was the right prophet, so, but the other king was putting down this righteous prophet. And then the king of Israel called one of his officers and said, bring Micaiah. He's the one that always said bad things, but he was God's prophet. He was one of the only prophets left of, of, of Yahweh, the ever-living one. And so they brought Micaiah, and in verse 12, the messenger who had gone to call Micaiah said to him, Now listen to the words of the prophets with one accord, encourage the king. Therefore let your words be like the word of one of them, and speak encouragement. All the other ministers say, well, it's easier to keep Sunday, and that's the normal rest day, and why don't you go along? Why don't you learn to fit in? Don't cause trouble. Don't get out of line. You're just sicking your neck out. But here is a true prophet. Micaiah said, as the eternal lives, whatever my Lord, my God says, that will I speak. He was a true prophet of God. So he came to the king and they asked him then, what's going to happen in this warfare if we go up to fight uh, these people? And uh, so uh, then uh, he first kind of sarcastically said, well, you win, you win. But obviously said it in a sarcastic tone because Jehoshaphat sensed that. It says, well, what's really going to happen? And then Micaiah said, verse 18, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the ever-living one sitting on his throne. Here's God sitting on his throne. And all the host of heaven standing on his right hand and his left. And the eternal said, Who will persuade Ahab, see this wicked king of Israel, the ten tribes had rebelled and gone away from God, and Jehoshaphat and most of the people of Judah were still remaining faithful to, to God at that time. But who's going to persuade this wicked king of Israel, Ahab, to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? And that was God's will, apparently. And one spoke in this manner, and another spoke in that manner. Then a spirit, probably a demon spirit, I'm sure, because of the advice he gives. But God allowed the demons to come there. Satan the devil, you know, came in, in the time of Job, you know, and appeared before God. A spirit came forward and said, I will persuade him. And the eternal said, in what way? So this demon says in verse 21, I will go out and be a lying spirit. And we find elsewhere in the Bible that God's faithful angels do not lie. They keep God's commandments. So this was a demon spirit. I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his ministers. <laughs> We'd say today, all his preachers, all his prophets. Do, do demons sometimes influence false ministers? Of course they do. We know all the other scriptures on that. They are in charge, ultimately, of this world's religion and this world's atmosphere in every way. I'm going to be a demon spirit and to confuse him through his false preachers. And the Eternal said, You shall persuade him and prevail. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, look, the Eternal has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these prophets. He allowed it to be done, of course, through the devil or through this demon of yours. And the Eternal had declared disaster against you. So that's what Micaiah warned Jehoshaphat about. But it's interesting, we find here one of the very few places in the Bible 
where a conference, an encounter in heaven is described, and spirit beings are there, and they're having a conference, and here is Christ saying, God the Father, maybe Christ the Son, they're together. The Word was perhaps saying this, what do we do, and what's the best way, and getting some advice, and so on. And they had a conference and decided, we'll do it this way. We'll let this demon go out and confuse Ahab, because the whole nation was going wrong anyway, and it was time for God to punish them. But it was done through this false spirit. Demon spirits influencing nations. Demon spirits influencing warfare. Demon spirits influencing people in the highest places. Demon spirits influencing any one of God's people. You see, the devil and his demons don't have to spend a tremendous lot of energy on the people who are already worshiping uh, idols of Buddha over somewhere or all these other religions around the world. They're already under Satan's influence. He will tend to zero in on the ones who are training, in training now, right now, in training to replace him and his demons ruling this world. So if he can get at us, get at God's people, upset them, confuse them, turn them against one another, do anything he can to destroy the church of God, the people of God, the work of God, he will do that. That is his plan. That it is his purpose. That is his strategy. And we've got to realize that. And we've got to realize the very real enemy that we're facing right now today and will continue to face. So we've got to constantly be praying for one another because any one of us can fall prey to that. Any one of us. And that's an important thing to understand. In this age above all others, brethren, as far as I can know, certainly above most other ages, Satan will attack And he will increase his attacks on the true church of God. Why? Because we're near the time of the end. We're near the time when he's going to be kicked out, where he's enraged, as we read a little bit later, and turns against God and God's people and God's church. This time, Satan's attacks will come to their apex. Turn now to Revelation chapter 12, and we'll see that. Revelation chapter 12. Here, John, under inspiration, tells us of some other tremendous things that have happened and are going to happen. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven. It describes the woman, ancient Israel, bringing forth the Messiah, as you see. And it describes another sign, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. So here's the devil behind this false system that God describes back in Daniel 2 and 4 and 7. So the devil is behind that. And his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. We've explained the details of that to you many times. Stars are used as a symbol of angels, as you read in chapter 1 of Revelation. So he drew one-third of the angels, this great dragon, who's identified in verse 9 as Satan the devil. And it's amazing. You had Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer, you know, who are mentioned as the three cherubs, or three super archangels, we could say. And it says he drew a third. So apparently, we can't prove it mathematically, but the indication is that Satan drew the entire third, or at least the vast majority of his entire contingent of angels. He is very persuasive. Those angels certainly should have known better. They're bigger and stronger and more powerful and intelligent than we human beings are. He got them. He took the whole bunch and turned them against God. 
and made them become demons. What a powerful enemy we have. We have to understand that. So he drew a third of these stars of heaven, threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman, ancient Israel as it was then, the church in the wilderness, as Christ calls it through Stephen in uh, Acts 7:38, the ancient Israel was the church in the wilderness that brought forth the Messiah. <clears throat> and the woman was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. We know the story on that. Satan tried to destroy Christ. You know, Herod tried to tell the wise men, after you find out where the Messiah, come and tell me and I'll come and worship him. He wanted to go and kill him. And you know the rest of the story, as we say. From the very beginning, Satan tried to destroy Christ. Then he started to destroy Christ's church and almost did during the time of the apostles. And right after the apostles, he did wipe out the vast majority by either killing them or causing them to be confused and disoriented and go into what became the Catholic Church. Horrible times back there where people were impaled on stakes, tortured, thrown to wild animals, all kinds of things we've never had to face. Never, never had to face things like that. Anyway, and she bore a male child. Christ came, born of Israel, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That tells who that child was, the coming Messiah. And her child then, it jumps ahead from his birth to his death, 33 and a half years later, was caught up to God in his throne. Then it jumps ahead a few hundred years during the Dark Ages, where then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. And they had to hide the church of God in various places, in the Alps and the mountains of Europe, from the great false church who is going to wipe them out, persecute them, kill them, torture them. Then, verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 years. And, of course, we know uh, how that was, a year for a day. So from that period of time, they had 1,260 years of hiding out. And uh, from 554 to... uh, uh, what was it, 1814, uh, till Napoleon came, or had his demise, I mean. And then you have suddenly the Protestant Reformation beginning to come to the fore and a great deal more safety from then on. And war broke out in heaven. Now, what is this? This earlier verse, verse 6, tells us about what happened in the Middle Ages. This, verse 7, you skip ahead several hundred more years. Another war, he just described the other war, When the woman had to flee, now he comes to the final war of Satan. War broke out in heaven. Michael, you see, one of the three cherubs, super archangels, and his angels fought against the devil. And the devil fought against them. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Satan and his angels were cast back to earth at that point. They couldn't stay up in heaven. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. Notice what it says. He's called the devil and Satan, of course, the the, the serpent, who deceives the whole world. It's not some minor thing. Every single last human being is deceived at one time or the other, except Jesus Christ, who is the exception. Every last single human being has no doubt at one time or the other been deceived until God calls them. God deals with them. God begins to open their mind. And then they become what? The little flock. 
In fact, a tiny flock <laughs> compared to our 6.3 billion people on earth. The very, very little flock. But the rest of the world are not deliberately evil. They're not a bunch of demons out there, but they're just under the general influence of this spirit being who says, well, God is not fair. And we don't agree with God and we want to have fun and we want to do our old thing and this old thing of laws and rules and some harsh old God. And they're taught all this stuff to confuse them. And it's implied by the put-down movies making the preacher, uh, preacher often in this film, the jackass. They employ the jackass formula, as you know, they call it. They use that term, as I've said. I read it. They use that term in Hollywood in the movies and in the television productions. They make a righteous man or they make some man that's a little old-fashioned or won't go along with the latest fad of homosexuality or gay marriage or stuff like that, then he becomes the jackass. They make him stumble over himself. He'll literally slip on a banana peel and fall. He'll say the wrong thing, do dumb thing, that kind of stupid. They, they can do that real cleverly, real cleverly. And so they employ that humor, put-down humor, and then they have other techniques, of course, and the whole world then is influenced then by the wrong kind of music, Telling you, in a sense, giving the kids the idea that they're supposed to shout and scream, a kind of a demonic thing coming out of their throats and these powerful uh, amplified guitars that sort of send out a, a, an attitude of rebellion and frustration. The demons trying to break out of their cage, so to speak. And you can sense that spirit coming out of a lot of the modern music. Not all of it at all. I'm just saying a lot of it's there. And I hope you young people hearing this can begin to understand that. There are moods behind music. And some of the moods of the old-fashioned music don't seem as exciting to the young people. During the time I grew up, America was basically a positive nation, still carnal, but we used to have just literally scores and scores of beautiful songs that were the popular songs. I'm looking over a four-leaf clover, you know, happy, happy, positive. And, you know, all the things you are and how beautiful you are and the love songs were positive. And just one song after the other. I might better not sing anymore. I'll drive you away. <laughs> but anyway, I could just go on and on if I, I haven't written these things out here, but use the different positive uh, words they had, you know, and, and uh, in the songs back then. And later... Elvis came along, Elvis the pelvis, and we call him, and he wiggled his hips, and he began to be suggestive and had kind of a jaunty, kind of an independent, well, I'll do what I think kind of an attitude. And that wasn't horrible, but it was not ideal. It began to set the stage, and then pretty soon the Beatles came along from England, you know, and they'd grown up in the slums of Liverpool, and they began to yell and scream, just yell and scream. And then others got even worse. And then you got into acid rock and all this kind of stuff. And these people that have their colored hair and spikes coming out, literally trying to look like Satan the devil and being influenced directly by Satan the devil in that. And that is the attitude that's beginning to permeate our youth. And they can't realize that, that progression. I can because the youth that I had from the time I was 10 to 25 was 1940 to uh, 1955, let's say. When I was 25 years old. And they had nothing like that back then. It began to come in in the late 50s and even more in the 60s. It began to change our whole attitude. And the people that let their children listen to that kind of music all the time. And let their people go to the movies all the time. And watch stuff on TV all the time. As it got worse and worse and worse. The devil through his broadcasting system. Satan the devil. SBS. Satan's broadcasting system. 
begin to have those attitudes put in their minds over and over. An attitude of doing their own thing, a spirit of rebellion, and so on. And it hurt them terribly. Hurt them terribly. And a lot of you know that if you have children or grandchildren and have seen it. You know that some of your friends and some of your relatives and people that you know have had their children get into excess alcohol and drugs. And so many have been in jail. And so many have just got all mixed up in their minds and had horrible things happen to them, even though their parents didn't teach them that at all. Their parents said, well, I was in the church and I, I lived a right life. And yes, they tried. But, you know, I can partly agree. I don't agree with Hillary very much, <laughs> but I can partly agree with Hillary. She said it takes the village to raise the child. Of course, she went beyond what her, her thing would be, have the government raise your child. But it does have a tremendous impact, and it is a tremendous, tremendous help to have the whole society basically clean. That is when I grew up marching us in when I was a little six, seven, eight, twelve, ten-year-old kid in the West Central grade school, and you start out the day maybe with a short prayer by the teacher, and you recite the Pledge of the Allegiance and salute the flag and uh, that kind of stuff, you know, kind of a clean atmosphere all through the day. And uh, this kind of thing. We, you know, they don't have that in most schools today. That's outlaw. That's wrong. And our heroes are being made fun of and being torn down. Anyone who's good and right and decent, the media tries to tear them to pieces. And the young people can't fully grasp that. Satan, the devil, and his demons resent that. They're trying to destroy God's nation, Israel. They know who we, they know who we are, Satan and his demons, and they're going to destroy God's spiritual Israel if they can, most of all, God's church, and get us and destroy us. So we have to realize the enemy we have. So Satan and his demons were deceiving the whole world, and he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Cast out from what? A war in heaven. When did that war take place? One of the other leaders of a, a sect, I guess, calls himself the Church of God. I greatly disagree with him. He said it happened. I went to, what was it, two, four years ago or something, remember? <laughs> you read his stuff. And uh, it has not happened yet. I'm just telling you that it has not happened yet. When it does happen, we're going to see suddenly these people in Europe uh, come up with all these terrible things and a lot the things are going to speed up and we will have a lot of demonism more than we have now believe me for that war in heaven will probably take place within the next five to ten years that's my prediction and you'll see a big change come over the world at that time but the world won't get it the young people won't get it they won't know what's going on but god's people should get it so the demons were cast back down, or will be, when that war takes place, and they try to fight God directly. They hate God, Satan and his demons. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation, strength, the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ have come. Woe to the, uh, uh, have come, for the accuser of our brethren uh, has been cast down. The accuser of our brethren who accused them day and night has been cast down. Satan the devil accuses God's people before God's throne day and night. He tries to even disorient God, if he could, and accuse God's people. And he will often get us accusing one another. And, of course, we've got to realize that. When people are worldly 
or they want their own way in many cases because of worldliness or just because of power, hungriness, or vanity or whatever, then they will begin to accuse others in the church. And Satan can get you accusing not the bad guys, but the good guys. And each one of you has to be close enough to God to understand that. Where is God working and what is going on here? And that requires, of course, a certain amount of spiritual discernment. Satan can easily manipulate your mind. And he can do this so that you will become confused and bitter against God or you will become confused and bitter against the church or the ministers who are preaching the truth and so on. I always remember a man that was in another area and he was a, a big shot. I could mention names, of course. I just don't like to do that. Some of these people are still alive. But he was a big shot and had a lot of power. And all of a sudden, that power began to be taken away from him in this area. And he began to be bitter and made little cutting remarks about Mr. Armstrong and those guys in Pasadena and so forth. This was, this was outside of Pasadena. And he uh, became increasingly bitter. I warned him for three times at least, I said, don't hang around these other guys. They are misleading you. They're going to hurt you. Please try to spend more time with so-and-so and so-and-so. And he did not do that. He let these other guys who were very unbalanced, and he became more and more unbalanced, and finally turned against Mr. Armstrong, turned against the truth, turned against everything, because he was demoted, and he had his power taken away from him. Was his power taken away from him for wonderful, good, godly reasons? No. No. I agree with that. Some people under Mr. Armstrong wanted his power destroyed and his power base destroyed so that they could do certain things uh, with the money and so they could do other things that they wanted to do. But did God allow it? Yes. Was it a test for this man? Yes. Did he pass the test? No. You see, he couldn't look beyond the few guys below Mr. Armstrong who were wanting to get rid of him for the wrong reason. But on the other hand, he himself was not close to God. On the other hand, he himself was very weak. And as I came to know him better and better, I came to realize that deeply. And I don't need to dwell on that. It became very, very obvious to me as it did to others. Tremendous vanity. Tremendous self-image. What happens if your self-image is shattered sometime? You've got to let it be broken. And I've had to let it be broken when I've had big offices and they were taken away and I was sent off. I could become very, very bitter. I don't want to dwell on my experience. It sounds like I'm bragging because I didn't handle every situation perfectly at all. But at least I didn't get bitter. This man did get bitter. And I tried to help him even after that. And one of the last dinners that my wife fixed for guests before she died, my first wife was having him and another man over and trying to help him and talk to him and reason him out of this bitterness. But we weren't able to do that. So he turned completely, totally away from the truth and is off in Nowheresville now, not with any one of the branches, you'd say, of God's church, as far as I know, but just off with some little more or less himself and Whatever. It's a terrible thing. Turned to a completely different uh, uh, religion, different ideas about God. Turned away from God's law, everything he formerly taught. Why? His self-image was shattered. 
He was not able to take that, you see. And so we have to realize Satan used this, allowed this to destroy him, even though he could see there were immediate problems around him. But beyond those problems around him, he forgot. He got his eyes off the big picture. He forgot that Mr. Herbert Armstrong was still alive. Mr. Armstrong was still preaching the truth. A number of the rest of us were still alive, as you can see. <laughs> and we were still preaching the truth. And the work was being done. The work of God and the commandments of God and the way of God was going out all over the world. All over the world. And he couldn't get... In his mind, the big picture, he just saw the immediate thing. Well, someone under Mr. Armstrong got me, and I can't take it. My self-image is shattered. Now, what if he had said, okay, I'll take it. God, my life is your life. I gave it to you at baptism. At baptism, I buried the old self. I'm nothing, less than nothing in vanity. Whatever you allow to happen is good. I'm still your servant, no matter what. Like Job did. You know, his, his enemies accused Job but he wasn't perfect. He had this self-righteous attitude for a while. My righteousness I maintain, Job said. But in the end, he says, I'm dust and ashes. I'm nothing. And finally came to the realization of how weak he was and was willing to learn the lesson. And then God gave him back double what he'd had before. This man was not able to learn that lesson, to go through that, at least at this time. I hope he will. But those things have happened. I've, I could cite several accounts like that. I'm just giving you one and just so you can understand. Yes, Satan can get at us in many different ways and get us to accusing one another. So that's a very important thing to understand. So even though there are local problems, we've got to keep our mind on the big picture and where Christ is still working and know that Christ is still in charge. But this man's pride was hurt. And you know the Proverbs say two or three times directly, not the exact word, but almost those exact words, pride goes before a fall. If you think I'm important and I've been important and they can't do this to me, and God sees that attitude, maybe that's the first thing He'll allow to happen to you. To help you, not to hurt you, to help you. Because none of us is a big shot. And we all have to realize that and deeply understand that. So let's try to understand it. Now, brethren, there are three key ways that Satan will try to get at us. And there are others, three key ways. And there are certainly many other ways as well. I just want to give you a picture here to try to help you to know what to do about it in general. And it's important. First of all, uh, he will try to make you think that God is unfair. And he does that especially to our young people. They begin to think that God's way is not fun or this or that. God won't let me just have fun or drink too much or go out here and there on Friday night or do what I want to do or marry who I want to marry or whatever. Then other people, when God allows, when, you know, when he rebukes and chastens you like he does every son he loves, then you'll say God is not fair. And various things where that will come up. Remember Genesis chapter 3 tells about the serpent. And he came to whomp to the woman, Eve, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Has God indeed said you'll not eat of every tree? What's wrong with God? He doesn't let you eat of everything, you know. And she says, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees, but this one tree, he says, you'll not touch it lest you die. And the serpent said, you'll not die. God knows in a day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God 
knowing good and evil, you'll understand everything. And what's the clear implication? God is not fair. He's not fair. He's not letting you eat this wonderful tree to understand all this stuff. And you can't go ahead and try out sex before you're married. And you can't go ahead and maybe try drugs and see how your mind is blown. You think, well, I'm different. I can try heroin and it won't blow my mind. And you try it. And they say you even try one of those things. And sometimes you're hooked from that moment on. It may take you the rest of your life to get over it. You may never get over it. Literally damages the brain cells and turns your your mind into mush, so to speak, for a while. But think, I've got to try it out. I've got to have fun. I've got to see what it's like. I've got to get drunk to see what it's like. I've got to go in the world and see what it's like. No, you don't. You don't have to learn the hard way. You could learn the better way if you're willing. God is not unfair. He gives us laws that are good He wants us to have the abundant life, Jesus said. John 10, verse 10, I am come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And many of us in God's church have trials and tests and faults, so it's not totally abundant in every aspect. But I can just tell you, in spite of the things I've told you about, being sent into exile in England, being sent into exile in Hawaii, being sent into exile in Glendore, where I was allowed to preach, or even open in prayer for about three years and all the rest of it after being the third man in the work of God, that was really hurtful. Man, I didn't like that. Man, I started to gnash my teeth and I could picture myself, literally sometimes, getting back at so-and-so and just better not say it. <laughs> but I thought thoughts many, many times. Then I would say, Rod, what's wrong with you? I always remembered Mr. Armstrong's statements because I did look on him as a father figure. In the right way. I've never worshipped him. I knew his faults. Probably better than most of you here. Better than maybe any of you here. But I knew he was God's servant. And I came as a 19-year-old kid and learned a whole way of life from him. And I thought, no, he's still there. He's been confused as he gets older. Certain people are taking advantage of him. But the work is still being done. And I've got to not get bitter at anybody or against God's work. And I've got to humble myself and try to learn whatever lesson God wants me to learn in this situation. Did I do that perfectly? No. (laughs) But basically, I tried, and God helped me. And I'm still here. But anyway, you can easily get bitter against God or against His servants, and you can think God is unfair. The ministry is unfair. The church is unfair. I don't get my own way. If you get your mind off the big picture, the second key way that God can get or the devil can get at you is through your worldly lusts and weaknesses. And I think that uh, you all know that, but just giving you a couple of key scriptures to think about in this regard. Turn to James, if you would, the book of James near the end of your New Testament, of course. And I'm going to turn to James chapter one, James chapter one. And uh, uh, beginning in verse 12, blessed is the man who endures temptation. All of us go through trials and tests for when he has been proved, uh, you have to prove to God that you will hang over, no ma- hang on no matter what. He will receive the crown of life, as Mr. Pyle brought out in his very fine sermonette. We have a crown waiting for us. Don't let any man take your crown whether he takes your job away or where he does this or where he allows you or serves you to become bitter or whatever it is, in whatever way, don't let humans or Satan working through humans 
or humans may even being guided by God to deal with you, but don't let that take away your crown. Don't let it happen. You're going to see the crown of life if you make the, make the test, pass the test. The crown which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. God doesn't tempt you. He's not trying to get you. He loves you. He sent His Son to die for you. He wants you to be in His family. He wants you to be in His kingdom, to bear His name forever. That's why He put you here. That's why He gave you life and breath. Don't say, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each one is drawn or is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lusts and uh, enticed. And then, uh, when his desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. He allows it to go around in his mind. Well, I look at this pretty girl, and then I'm going to do this and do that. Or this man made me mad, and I'll punch him out. And you go through, uh, you know, if I find him in the elevator, he'd better watch out. Or where, you know, a dark alley, I'll get him when the time comes. And you let this thing go around in your mind over and over again. I wrestled with that, I understand. But you let those things come along. And entertain those wrong thoughts. When the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. God gives good things. And we want to honor God. But He allows Satan to tempt us. He allows things to happen to help us, to teach us lessons for all eternity if we're willing to learn those lessons. And uh, one thing we need to understand in this regard, think about it. Satan will try to find your weakest link, and he will go after that. If your weakness is alcohol, he will try to get you on that. If your weakness is sex, he will try to get you on some aspect of illicit sex that is your weakness and get you stirred up and put a temptation right in front of you. You see, on that kind of thing, we finally had a rule where ministers were not to visit women alone, ever, as you know, because that is a temptation sometimes. And I remember we didn't have that rule, and I was up in Portland, Oregon as a young man, and, and very virile at that time, and just 20, 22 years old, and, and uh, visiting this woman, and, and uh, she wanted to be anointed. And I came to anoint her, and her husband wasn't there, and or they were separated, I think, and uh, and she had on her house coat, and I felt, well, I don't know, but she said, oh, just come and anoint me. I'm so sick. I said, okay, and so she got me back with the bed. She said, I just want to kneel down here like a dumb ox. I followed her back, and, and then after I anointed her, we'd been down, and she got up, and, and she started to fall open in front, and I thought, ooh, she said, I said, I'm really busy. I'm getting out of here, and I did. <laughs> God says, flee fornication, <laughs> and I didn't run to the door, but I walked swiftly, just got out of there and slammed the door. But, you know, you have those things come right at you. And Satan knew I was alone. He knew I was vulnerable. He knew I was, uh, you know, frustrated up there. I'd been with all these fellows and girls and ambassador, and all of a sudden I was alone up there and lonesome and, and uh, eating wheat germ, you know, and everything else. So he, he, he put some things before me, and I had to fight that, of course. And uh, luckily I never succumbed to that, although I certainly made other mistakes in my life. But anyway, uh, we... Uh, he will get after you for liquor. He will get after you if your weakness is sex. He will get after you if your weakness is drugs. He will get after you if he finds you just like people and you want to hang around with friends that are just exciting. Exciting. 
I remember one of my older sons used to hang around with people, and I think Cheryl even mentioned that his, his companions were very grungy, and there's one guy especially that turned out okay later, but he was really grungy, and I thought, oh my, why are you hanging around with this guy? But, you know, when you're a teenager, one of my best friends back when I was growing up, I think I've told you about him, was named Donald but we didn't call him Donald, Donald Duck, you know, we called him Ducky. <laughs> and Ducky became an alcoholic. And I think he had four marriages before he died. And I was the only one to go see Ducky before he died because he had cancer, uh, throat cancer of his excess smoking. But he'd become an alcoholic and smoked and everything. But anyway, I loved him. He was exciting. Let's go do this. Let's go do that. Well, I had to finally break off from Ducky, <laughs> and, uh, which I did. God actually helped me. He sent me to Ambassador College, and Ducky was 1,500 miles away. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, you have to be careful of the kind of friends. Proverbs says, choose your friends carefully. Satan can get at you through the long friends. Wrong friends. He can get at you through television. A lot of people say, well, it's not that bad. Well, if you could compare the thoughts that Jesus thought and the attitudes that Jesus had and the things that he allowed himself to see. Remember, King David said, I will put no evil thing before my eyes. And we in America put hundreds of hours of murder, illicit sex, kind of watering down stuff where they're implying fornication and it fades out. Maybe you don't see the one that shows the whole thing, although some of them do almost today. And you just go on and on. These attitudes of sort of put down against true religion, put down against righteousness, just fuse. Satan is vomiting that right out of the boom tube. You sit there and is it interesting? Of course it's interesting. I'm human. I'm not some angel. Sure, it's interesting if I allow myself to get hooked on that, on this stuff that comes out of the Internet nowadays where men can see and young boys can flip the right button and see completely naked women with other women and all this kind of stuff writhing around. Isn't that exciting? God made half the human beings on earth women. Half of them are men. Once you figure that all out, you think, okay, uh, we, can, we can live with that. We don't have to just dwell on it in a wrong way. But a lot of young boys, that they think they've discovered something new. You know, Adam discovered Eve in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> something new. And they just dwell on that in a perverted manner. So you have to stay away from too much television, too many movies, the wrong movies. You have to stay away from too much interest in worldly things or just the desire to make more money, make more money, make more money, get ahead, build my business bigger. You know, they asked uh, Bunker Hunt uh, back when he and his brother controlled the silver market or almost ready to back in 1978 and 9 and uh, early 80. They were billionaires. And he kept getting more and more money. And he said, well, why do you want to keep getting more money? You can't spend it all. And he says, I know that. But he says, that's how we keep score. <laughs> the more money we have, well, we got, we're bigger than, the, you know, it's fun. See, it's a big monopoly. But when they're doing that, they cut corners. They cheat other people. Their minds on that. That becomes their God and so on. They have another God before the true God. So don't let anything like that come between you and the true God. Satan can use that very easily. In 1 John 2, if you would turn there, just back toward the book of Revelation now, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15, God tells us through the beloved disciple, Do not love the world or the things in the world. 
Don't do that. I know the world's exciting, interesting things and nightclubs and beautiful women and whatever there is. Very exciting. It's all right to see the physical earth. We know that the mountains and things God has created, but this exciting scene that man has created under the devil's influence. If anyone loves the world, and remember the word world here is cosmos, doesn't mean the physical earth, it means the society. The kind of motion pictures and the kind of music and these rock concerts and the whole scene. It's exciting. Of course it is. Some of you will be watching the Super Bowl tomorrow night. I might watch part of it. It's not totally evil. But I don't usually watch the whole thing. But there will be some stuff, and especially in the halftime show, even football is not ideal. I used to play it. I love it. It was my favorite sport, even though I was pretty small. Our big Kaminsky coach called us, Russ Kaminsky called us the Tiny Tots. And we did have one of the smallest teams he'd ever coached. But we won most of the time because Roy Beavers, our halfback, was the fastest white man. We had separate schools back then, as our blacks were a member. But he was the fastest white man in the state of Missouri. Three years in a row, he won the Class A high school 100-yard dash and the 220 at the state meet. Bang! And we'd spring Roy loose, and he'd go for the goal, you know, and uh, so we would win. But uh, at any rate, uh, we'd go bang, bang. Every afternoon I'd come home from blocking practice, your, your, your hand would be all scarred where you'd been stomped on by the cleats, and you're down here butting heads. Some of the big professional players literally get punched drunk. You've had articles on that. You've seen them. Just like boxers, they get hit, crashing against each other's head. That's not exactly the most enlightening thing to do, <laughs> the most Christian thing to do. But you watch that. And then during the halftime show, Janet Jackson decides to show that she is a female. <laughs> and isn't that exciting? We don't know what they'll have this time. I don't know. But they get all these women gyrating around and kicking up and showing their legs and their bodies, the cheerleaders. And so the world seems exciting. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, you see, it's all right to have fun in the right way, but not to just dwell on it and not to lust, to have wrong thoughts about it. The lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever." This society is goner. It is soon going to be gone, young people especially, because you young people are most influenced thinking the world's your big apple is exciting. There have been naked women, fornication, adultery, wild dancing, wild music ever since before the flood. Not something new. They just have a better way of getting it out now through radio and television, influencing more people the wrong way. All under the influence of Satan the devil. Get out of it. Stay away from it. Flee it. Flee fornication. Flee that stuff. So you have to understand. Uh, Then the third area, the third key area in which Satan will try to overcome you is your own vanity and the desire that you want to be noticed. You want to be important. You want to have power. You want to be rich. This image that you create of yourself, you see, as Mr. Armstrong said, that image has to be shattered sooner or later. And all of us have that image of ourselves at one time or the other. And some of us carry various parts of it from time to time, even after we're converted. We're not perfect. We have to keep 
crushing part of that image in our own minds. So you have to remember that each of us has that. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 14. In Isaiah chapter 14, you find the originator of this whole attitude. Isaiah 14, verse 12. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How you're cut down to the ground, who weakened the nations. You've said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I want to be a big shot. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. I'm going to be the biggest, the strongest, the most important. I'm going to be a big shot. That was his attitude. He puts that attitude in various ways. The women want to show off. They want to be the prettiest. The men want to be the strongest or the richest or the whatever, have the most power of their job or their title. I will be like the Most High. Yet you will be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit, God says. That attitude comes right straight from Satan the devil. All of us have had it. I have had it. You have had it. So we have to fight that attitude every day of our lives to say, I am a bond slave of Jesus Christ. He bought and paid for me. He bought and paid for me. I am his. If he wants me to be down here, that's fine. If he wants me to be up here, I want to use my time and my talents the best way I can. And if he puts me down for a while or puts me off for a while, he'll bring me back. I will be brought back from Hawaii. We haven't sent any of you to Hawaii yet. <laughs> but I will. But it will work out in the end. And uh, it, it does. I can tell you that. So let's understand. We've got to submit to God and put our faith and trust in Him and get rid of that self-image and that pride. Pride goes before a fall. Always. Pride. The self-will. The self-image. Turn to First Peter, brethren. Turn to First Peter now in your New Testament. And uh, I want to uh, read here. I can find my marker. First Peter chapter 5. Verse 1, the elders who are among you, I exhort whom a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. When they saw Christ writhing on the cross and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the blood then spurted it out when that spear was jammed in his side. It had a great effect on them. And then when he resurrected from the dead, they never forgot that. It gave them a sense of, of humility, a sense of worship and adoration, perhaps beyond what any of us have. Shepherd the flock of God. Don't be a big shot. Be a shepherd. Be a servant. The flock of God. Serving as overseers, not by constraint, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Not as being lords. Don't be a big shot over God's people, trying to catch them, trying to overly correct them or manage them or, or lord it over them in any way. But being examples. Examples of love, of service, of kindness, of patience, the best way you can. There's some bad guy causing trouble or division. Yes, you have to deal with that to protect the flock as a whole. But as best you can, do it that way, he tells us. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory, which does not fade away, an everlasting crown. Likewise, you younger, you younger people, you newer people in the church, whoever, submit yourselves to your elders. All of us should do that. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another, and be clothed with humility. That's perhaps the hardest thing of all. To be clothed with humility. 
No one of us is clothed with humility all day long, every day, the way Jesus Christ was, thinking hour by hour and minute by minute, I'm here as God's servant. How can I help, teach, bless, heal, encourage, protect, strengthen, and give myself to these people as their servant? That should be our attitude. Clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, those who get their feelings hurt, those who throw fits when they don't get their way. God resists the proud. And he sure does, brethren. He doesn't like that attitude at all, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. You've got to do that, or you will never, ever be in the kingdom of God. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he, let him do it, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. He cares for each one of us. He died for us. He wants us to learn every lesson so we can be humble, so we can submit to Him, so we can submit to one another throughout all eternity and not have the self-will. I want what I want, when I want it. And if I don't get it, I'll rebel against God or against God's ministers or God's work or later like Satan against God Himself. So He's got to be sure we learn that lesson. Be sober. Be vigilant. Be alert all the time against your real enemy. And remember, your real enemy is very, very real, and it's not other people. It's Satan the devil and his demons. That is your real enemy, your ultimate enemy. Because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He wants to destroy me. He will try to get at me in various ways. He will try to get at you, and we have to fight it, sometimes with tears in our eyes. Help me, O God, as I have this feeling of lust or vanity or whatever come over me. Resist him. You've got to fight. You must battle Satan. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world, but made the God of all grace who called us into, as I've said. The Greek word here is not to, but ice, into. He's not just called us up to the foot of the mountain to see it up there. He's called us into His eternal glory, that we will share that glory. Boy, we have a wonderful reward to look to once we learn our lessons, each of us. So He's called us into His eternal glory by Jesus Christ. Then what? After you have suffered a while, and Peter's last letter, that's what he says. He knows. After you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, brethren, be sure you know your enemy. Be sure you're aware of your real enemy, how real he is and how real his demons are. The spirit world around you, you've got to resist all the time. Prepare for your real battle, which is just ahead and which will be a continuing battle as long as we're in the human flesh. Prepare for that. Understand that. Fight the good fight of faith with all your heart and pray, pray unceasingly for one another. Because if you're not being tempted right now, perhaps your brother is. Each one of us is vulnerable. I'm vulnerable. You're vulnerable. Forgive each other. Help each other. Encourage each other. Have mercy on each other. Love each other. Pray for each other that we can win that battle.